Uh, Let's open our Bibles, though, to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7. And I'm going to read one of the most harrowing passages or three verses in all of the Bible this morning. And I don't think that's an overstatement. It perhaps even is an understatement in terms of the full gravity and force of Jesus' words. Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty Many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Now we've been hitting the home stretch of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount these many weeks. And I've broken up the verse sections into five categories, five ways that we're supposed to side with Jesus. The culture is foreboding. It's, it's been threatening at levels lately. We're perhaps thankful for how things have trended in the mayoral, mayoral election. And we're excited about a bit of a breath of fresh air of some conservative, conservative teaching and, and ideology in our culture. But, you know, we can't hope in culture. We, we pray for politicians. We pray for those who are elected authorities. We, we pray for peace, right? But we are in a battle um, for truth always as Christians. And Christianity is binary. And in the end, the goal is to have been on the narrow road. And when you stand before the Lord who is judge, you want to be welcomed in. And That's perhaps our first goal. Our second goal is to invite everyone else in with the same saving message to be right there with us. This is a text that just clears the deck in terms of what really matters. And as the culture is pressing, we have to stand stronger for truth, be more on point, be more on message because everything is binary in terms of being a Christian or not. You're either in Or you're out. You're either in the fellowship or you're out. Christ is either in you or he's not. You're either under God or under the prince of the power of the air, Satan. You're either from the line of Christ or the line of Adam. You're either still fallen or you are regenerate. You are either set apart and holy and a saint in God's eyes. Or you are in darkness, dead in your trespasses and sins. Things are saved or unsaved in terms of you. In terms of me, we are either children of God or we are not. And this is the text where Jesus could not be clearer in terms of drawing the line between who's in and who's out. And it's given in a retrospective way. It's a retrospective. What do I mean by that? I mean, once you are standing before the throne of God, this is not in terms of how you're going to live or what you believe now going forward. This is everything, all the marbles in terms of whether you're going to heaven or hell or in this moment and you're looking backwards retrospectively at your life and saying, was it real or was it all a lie? This is the call to authenticity. This is not actions that led you up to this moment, whether you get in or out. This is authenticity, being truly a Christian or not. That then matters in these moments as you stand before 
the Lord. These are the final statements. The final statements that anyone makes in a sermon should be the uh, most important statements. This is where Jesus is bringing the crowds to a decision point in the Sermon on the Mount. It's one way or the other. You have to declare aside. Are you someone who loves like Jesus, leads like Jesus, learns from Jesus, lives for Jesus, and listens to Jesus? Listening to the warnings, that's next week. This week is living for Jesus. In other words, everything will come down to how you lived in this life when you stand before the Lord. It all comes down to was it real or was it not? I've been talking about the narrow road and the wide road. The wide road that many are on. It's an easy path. It's a wide gate. How wide is the gate? It's 8 billion people wide. The world is taking that road. That Interstate 5, the 5 freeway where you're flying thoughtlessly, not thinking about where you're ending up and you're launching yourself off into an eternal hell versus the narrow road, which is the thin path that's like thread like thin that leads to life, leads to heaven, and that is a hard path. A hard path, one or the other. I was uh, this week at what was called Outdoor Ed. We always call it Outdoor Ed, and it's a sixth grade rite of passage camp that uh, the sixth graders at Grace Christian go to. And I was uh, um, lovingly selected within my family to accompany my son to Outdoor Ed. So Monday through Wednesday, I was one of the chaperones with the men in the boys' cabin, and there were a couple of those, and the, the women were there with the girls, and it was a nice, a nice time, a nice time of camping, a nice time of fellowship, and, you know, teaching the Bible and having some good prayer times and discussions, climbing ropes, um, kids riding horses. I mean, solid rock Bible camp. It couldn't be better. That's called glamping, actually, because you have all kinds of amenities. It was awesome. That's the only camping I do. But, um, really, but, uh, but anyway, I, I had a good time, but then there is the, the sort of harrowing hike that is, uh, before you at the end of the camp. You're like, it's Wednesday, pack up time, time to go home. We're going to get some ice cream and do a, a little hike. No, we're hiking Slaughter Gulch today. Why do you name a place Slaughter Gulch? Somebody knows, don't tell me. I, it's just, but I'm not a hiker I've never been a hiker. I do it. I've done it. Um, and it's because I don't have good balance. I like to do things in the water where I can fall down and be okay. And, uh, but I like to win or you know, achieve things. So when Randy, who's post-back surgery twice over, is going up on tracking poles, guess what? I'm going where he goes. And if, it, if it's up there, we're going all the way up. And, and so we hiked, and, and he looked at me where we were three quarters up the hike and we only made it to the false summit. But, you know, that was, that was what I was gunning for. And, and he's saying, you know, this is a great sermon illustration. I'm heaving and huffing and puffing and gathering breath and my legs are burning. He said, this is like the narrow road, you know. And so, so that, but it's true. There, you can talk a lot about Slaughter Gulch and, you know, I know all about that. I've seen it on the map. I've watched videos about it. I've heard tell of it from my kids who've survived Ascending Slaughter Gulch, and they've been at the top. But unless you've done the hike, you've not hiked Slaughter Gulch. You've either done it, and you were on that road, and you went up to the top, or you haven't done it. And if you've done it, you know you've done it, because your legs burned, and your heart raced, and you got to the top, and it was beautiful. And that's 
what we're talking about. This is that kind of dividing line. This is living for Jesus. And so here's the question. How do you know that you know you will enter heaven? And this is not like the old evangelists, like I used to sit, you know, in the, the Baptist fundamentalism, you know, the, the evangelists would come to town and say, son or daughter, do you know that you know that you know that you're going to heaven? Well, this is not that kind of manipulation. What I'm saying is really the most important thing that you can know in this lifetime is that you know that you're going to heaven and the Bible tells you how you can know that you are going to be there with Jesus and Jesus is going to say, welcome, enter into the joy of your master, right? That's, that's what we want. How do we know that that's us compared to everybody else who's going to be told, depart from me? How do we know? Well, it's not performance-based. It's based on authenticity. So how do, we, how do we understand that we were authentic in this life as we lead, our, lead ourselves to eternity? Well, let's begin with the text. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone. Not everyone is a niche category. You need to understand this. There's the wide road category and the narrow road category. There are believers and unbelievers. There's most who are going to not believe and a few that are going to find the narrow road. Well, within the wide road, this is a category within that category. There are people who on the wide road believe that they are on the narrow road, even though they're on the wide road. There are people who are in abject rebellion, who utterly out loud reject Christ. More and more, you're going to see that in the culture. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. I don't want anything to do with the Bible. I don't want anything to do with conservatism or anything that would hold me accountable whatsoever. That has to be wrong. There are people who say, no, I go to church every now and then, I check the box, I align with Christendom as an American, and so I'm a Christian. And then there are people who are in church, who are raised in church and around the things of God, and perhaps even have been moved in their hearts by the things of God, who think that they're on the narrow road, but they're really on the wide road. And that's what Jesus is talking about. That's the severity of this warning. That's the precision of Jesus's warning here. He's narrowing it down from wide road to narrow road to a category within the wide road where you think you're good and you're not good. You think you're safe and you're not safe. It's like in, you know, driving around. I don't have a good sense of direction. I was very thankful for GPS. But if you put the wrong address into your GPS and you think you're going the right way and you're faking yourself out, turn left, turn right, do this. And then suddenly you find that you really aren't going in the right direction at all. Nathan Schneider and I did this once. We landed in LAX, right? We were there. We're going to uh, a conference. We're just trying to get to our hotel. It's probably 11 o'clock at night. We're going down probably the 5 freeway, ironically, just going a direction. I had put in the wrong GPS, and we're just both sort of like hard-headedly going, you know, are we going the right direction? And we're just flying in the wrong direction for a long time, and then we turned around. But that's that's the dramatic nature of this in terms of eternity. I mean, we make light of getting lost, but being truly lost spiritually is a significant problem that has to be solved in this life. There are 8 billion wide roadies who are just convinced that they are on the narrow road and really are not at all. They think they're safe and they are not. It's terrifying once you're 
in the next life, it's too late to believe. It's a binary difference. And really, we're talking about the sin of being self-deceived, self-deception, self-deception, where we need to recalculate things and understand that we're on the wrong road. Well, this self-deception is based, look at verse 21 again, not everyone who says it's says to me, Lord, Lord. It's a self-deception that or confusion that's born out of a false confession. These are people who are making a confession that, of Christ. They're saying, Lord, Lord, I am a follower of this Lord. And they're really not at all. So it's confidence that's based out of a false confession calling Jesus Lord. Well, isn't that something we're supposed to do? Aren't we supposed to confess Jesus as Lord to be saved? That's true. 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 10 say that. 1 Corinthians 12 is where Paul was speaking to the Corinthians. And he says, no one speaking in verse 3, no one speaking in the Spirit ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, here's the promise. You will be saved. Well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Which is it? If you confess Jesus is Lord, isn't that guaranteed heaven? Well, in this context, Jesus is calling people out who are making a superficial confession. They don't really mean it. They, they even think they mean it, but they really don't mean it. It's not born by the Holy Spirit. You see, the qualifier in 1 Corinthians 12 is that no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. What we're talking about is a confession that comes out of a changed heart, not out of just saying the words. A lot of people in the church today believe in the magic formula statement of you know, saying the, printer's, the sinner's prayer or coming forward at a church service and having some pastor say, just repeat these words after me and we sign it up and you can put it in your Bible and that's your fire insurance policy that you're going to heaven when really that's just going through the motions. Someone saying, Lord, Lord, and then forgetting about the Lord altogether. Just like knowing about a hike, knowing about a journey, knowing about a road, knowing all about it talking about it, associating with it, but not really being on the journey, on the hike at all, right? It's two different things. There's authenticity and there's going through the motion. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and here it is, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Out of the mouth, the heart speaks. A transformed heart is where a true spirit-wrought confession comes. But if you're just saying, no, I believe in Jesus, I'm good. That's not true conversion at all. It's essential to bow the knee to the lordship of Christ. But if you were a deaf and mute person where you couldn't speak physically, you could not say words. If your heart was saying Jesus is Lord, that's enough. That's enough. This is not externals. This is the transformation of the heart. That matters. In 1 Corinthians 12, just quickly, the Corinthians were new believers. They were coming out of raw, straight out paganism. They were coming from what we would modernly call the rave culture, where they were 
falling down in ecstatic experiences and immorality and orgiastic, uh, you know, dynamics that they were syncretizing with their worship and bringing that into the church. And Paul was calling that out. He was saying that people were being led into that. If you look at 1 Corinthians 12, 1, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, meaning lifeless things. You're just worshiping in paganism. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking by the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. Well, they were being led by mute idols and they were bringing that kind of worship into the church, which is completely forbidden. Even the Sermon on the Mount says, don't be repetitious in your praying. Don't try to drum up prayer requests and be dynamically involved in this way. People were falling out in ecstatic experiences, involving themselves in drunkenness and immorality to the point where they were even saying Jesus is accursed. And Paul's saying nobody does that by the spirit of God. That kind of thing is false. And in the hyper-charismatic movement, I have a lot of charismatic brothers and sisters and many that I deeply respect that love the word of God. But there are those who are, who are hyper, who are outside of Christ in the name of being a charismatic, where they are falling out in religious experiences, ecstatic experiences, letting themselves go into hypnotic trances, where even you can see you know, kids flopping around. This is nothing new. We've seen this, and it's, it's an abusive um, dynamic that I think is more pagan than anything having to do with Christ or the Holy Spirit at all. They claim that they are confirmed by their experiences and saying, well, that must be the Holy Spirit because look what's happening, whereas it's really a condemnation of paganism, and they begin to worship what is the, a wrong Christ, not a true Christ, not the Jesus of Scripture. They're worshiping experiences. In this case, in 1 Corinthians 12, these were demon-inspired dynamics. And in 1 Corinthians 12, it says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. That means no one can say, I am following the Lordship of Christ genuinely except by the Spirit. They were being led, 1 Corinthians 12, 2. However, they were led. They were leading themselves, one thing leading to another, into a worship of self. Well, I don't want to just pick on the hyper-charismatics. How about the Baptist? There, I, came, I grew up in Baptist culture and was many times white-knuckling the pew as they sang another chorus of Just As I Am. And the preacher would say, come forward, confess your sins. And I mean, a lot of good things happen in altar calls because people are meeting with the Lord. But when you begin to place your faith in that kind of experience, that kind of confirmation... It's no different than a religious ceremony, even Roman Catholicism, where you're a confirmed externally as opposed to a transformed heart. And in that Baptist setting, you can feel like your sins are forgiven. Things are all wiped clean until you mess up again. And then you need to go do altar call confession in a Baptist setting in the same way. And all of that is fakery. All of that is trickery. It's trying to trick people into membership, into a Baptist movement. I don't want to just pick on the Baptists. Let's pick on the non-denominational people. That's us, folks. And I mean, we can't educate ourselves into the kingdom of God. You can't take enough doctrine, Hebrew, Greek, have enough degrees to be confirmed into heaven. None of those things get you to heaven. None of those things welcome you into the kingdom of God. If you're trusting in ecstatic experiences, 
If you're trusting in religious confirmation from, hey, you're saved because you prayed this prayer, brother or sister, you're in. Sign a, sign a card. If you're trusting in education, if you're trusting in what you know, in knowledge that puffs up, all those things will send you directly to hell forever. If that's your trust, if that's your gospel, none of those things are the gospel. None of those things are what changes your heart. You can't say something magic, then is all hope lost? If we can't trust religion, is all hope lost? If I can't look at experiences, what does it mean to know that you have been received at all? Well, the Bible says, Jesus says it here. He says, no one or not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. The one who does the will of my father. What does that mean? Does that mean you are doing something that gets you into heaven? No. It means that you're on the path. What is the will of God? The will of God is following Jesus authentically in this life. God changes your heart. And when you're real, you follow Jesus at all cost. Deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. You've either joined the Lord's army or you're still on the outside. You're either on the hike or you decided not to go up. It's following Christ genuinely. And how do you know you're doing that? Well, Jesus modeled it. And John 6, 38, for I've come down from heaven, came down here, right? Not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus did everything after the, the counsel of the father's will. He just wanted to follow Jesus. If your Christian life is measured by understanding and, and seeing the providential hand of God through your life, where twists and turns. I'm not talking about the perfection of your life. I'm talking about the direction of your life. As you evaluate the sine wave of the highs and lows of your life, you've just been on this path and you're following Jesus and you're saying, I've seen Jesus in my life every step of the way. I might've forsook him, but he never left me or forsake, forsook me. I I can see his hand as he provides and I'm following his will and I'm following his word. If that's the testimony of your life, that's where we're talking about confidence that you truly know him because that's what Jesus said in terms of his relationship to his heavenly father. That's what he modeled. I followed the Lord, I mean, the father's will who sent me. What's the opposite? Let's learn what it's not first before we fully seal what it is to know that you know that you're going into heaven. Verse 22, it says, On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Many. It's wide road language. Many. Most are doing this. And again, this is the niche category within the wide road category that's saying, I was religious. What did I do? I predicted things. I was predicting things in the name of the Lord. I was pronouncing things in the name of the Lord. I was performing things in the name of the Lord. In the name is repeated three different times. Did we not prophesy? That's predicting things in, the, in your name. Cast out demons. That's literally pronouncing demons out of people in the name of the Lord and do mighty works. That's performing miracles. Um, You know, hyper charismatics beware of doing things and trusting in prophecies, in demon exorcisms, in seeing miracles happen. Be warned if you're trusting in any of that to get you into heaven. 
it, be warned of trusting in any of that to say, I know I'm a Christian because I have seen the power of God come in and through me in my life. This person was demon possessed and now they aren't. That's how I know I'm a Christian. I mean, that's actually a very powerful argument if you've experienced those things, but it's an argument that will not hold weight in heaven before the Lord. It's just important to, to know that. And Baptists who would try to work their way to heaven or trust Baptist experiences still won't get you to heaven. Non-denominationals like me, non-denoms who, uh, I mean, I was a former Baptist. But uh, anyway, non-denominational, um, you know, knowledge-based Christianity, that doesn't get you into heaven. You can know a whole lot about the Bible and not know the Lord. Let me introduce the Pharisees. Um, Exhibit A, Nicodemus. What? You don't understand these things? You don't understand that you need to be born again? How did you get the PhD and not get born again? (laughs) You know, that's what the Lord said in John 3. How do you not get this? It's revealed by the Spirit of God. How much experience can you really be a part of and, and not know the Lord? It's incredible. It's incredible. I mean, Hebrews 6 talks about in Hebrews 6, verses 1 to 9, it's probably one of the most complicated passages in the Bible. But verse 4, it says, it is impossible. And then verse 6 picks up on the end of that statement. It's impossible, what? Middle of verse 6, to restore them again to repentance. Who? Who is it impossible to restore again to repentance in this lifetime? This is who? Someone who has experienced the power of God up front, front row seat, front and center, powerfully seeing things, experiencing things, and rejecting God at the end of it all. That's the person who is hardened up to the point of no return. Look at this, verse 4 of Hebrews 6. In the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit. What? They've shared in the Holy Spirit and they're not converted? Yes. Verse 5, have tasted the goodness of the word of God. What? They love the Bible and they're not converted? and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Well, Jesus can't be re-crucified, but the idea and sarcasm of that is that it, it, when you get that kind of rights and privilege with Christ, where you have a VIP pass up front and center, seeing the power of God, performing miracles, casting out demons, loving and hearing the truth up close and personal, and then you reject it. Christ goes, I, you are, I'm giving you over to reprobation and I'm allowing your heart to now harden. You say, well, where did that ever happen? What about when the Pharisees saw Jesus casting out demons and they accused him of doing that by the power of Beelzebul? Do you remember that? By the power of Satan. He said, well, how can a kingdom be divided against itself? If I'm casting out demons, how can you say that about me? And then he said, you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit. That's what he said to the Pharisees. And they were condemned. They were to the point of no return. Well, where did that actually happen personally? Well, that was Judas Iscariot. Judas Iscariot, who was with Jesus, who was counted as Jesus' friend. Jesus washed Judas Iscariot's feet in the upper room. Intimate fellowship friendship, camaraderie. Jesus stayed up all night praying and selected 12 to be the apostles and one of whom was Judas Iscariot. Now that name is immediately associated with reprobation and, you know, he sold Jesus out. 
He hardened up. He was this horrible person. But he was Jesus' friend before he abandoned Jesus, before he betrayed Jesus, before he stole from Jesus, before he hanged himself for the guilt of doing all those things against Jesus. He was Jesus' friend. He had access to Jesus. Remember, he kissed Jesus' face to his cheek to uh, expose him to the Roman guard. But how much power did Judas experience before all of that apostasy, before he fell away, which means that you were never converted in the first place? Because once you're saved, you can't be unsaved, but you can fall away. And that's where people are so deluded in their own thinking. They think they're fine. I think I'm safe because all of this power is around me, but they're really not the real thing. Well, Matthew 10, 1 through 4, when he called the 12 disciples, it says he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. And then in verse 4, Judas Iscariot is named as one of those who was the 12. So that's not knowing. That's point one. That's not knowing that you are secure. You're someone who is like this. You're someone who is trusted in the religious experiences of predicting and pronouncing and performing things in the name of the Lord. By the way, what is the name of the Lord? The name of the Lord is the word kurios, which means master, or it is the word translated Lord in the text. When you say anything in relation to the name of God or the name of the Lord, you're talking about all of the character of who God is. And so what they're doing is they're saying in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that's who I did these things in the name of. Um, in Philippians 2, you know that uh, Jesus once, he was is exalted by the right hand of the Father. Philippians 2 says um, that Jesus bestowed upon him the name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and earth and under the earth. And that is to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And you say, is Jesus the name of, of, of the Son of God or is it Lord? Well, I would make the case that Jesus was the common earthly name of Jesus, just like, you know, you would hear the word Yeshua, which is where we get the word Joshua. So when people called out to Jesus, they were saying, hey, Joshua, you know, they were talking to him relating that way. But when we're talking about the lordship of Christ at the name of Jesus, what is the name that is the title given to Jesus? It is that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is Lord. If you just look over at Philippians 2, verse 10, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue. Here's what they're going to confess, that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Lord. It's really what we're talking about. People were doing things in the name of the Lord and faking themselves out to believe that they were in the kingdom and they really were not at all. That's why in heaven people are saying, I did, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. The power of the Lordship of Christ, and they were faking themselves out. Okay, so what does it mean to actually know that you know you're going to heaven? Look at verse 23. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's just the worst thing to ever be told, right? I never knew you depart from me you work you workers of lawlessness 
to have this declaration, this is Jesus who's doing that. He is the final say. This is the final word about someone's eternity. It is forever. It is sealed. Everything comes down to one thing. It's whether or not you truly knew the Lord in this lifetime before that moment. Everything is pivoting on that reality. Do you truly know Jesus or are you lying to yourself, faking yourself out? That is the question of the morning. That's it. How do you know if you know the Lord? Well, back up at verse 21. You're someone who does the will of my Father who is in heaven versus trusting in doing mighty works or someone who did prophesy in the name. You're either trusting in religious experiences You're trusting in something else other than being someone who is in a submissive posture, climbing the path of the narrow road that's hard, and you're doing that for Jesus. Not to earn your salvation, but not out of action, but out of authenticity. It's either real or it's a lie. Look, this is what Jesus prayed in John 17. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you've given authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all who um, you have given him. Listen to this, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life, equal sign, knowing God. You see that? You either know God and have eternal life or you do not truly know God and you do not have eternal life. Now look how Jesus is defining his own knowledge of God the Father, his own relationship to the Father. Look at verse four. I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He walked his own narrow path before the Father, accomplishing everything that God gave him to do. He said, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with glory. I know what I did in this life. I know it was real. My relationship to you, Heavenly Father, was real. Now bring me back to the glory that I once had. Everything comes down to whether or not you genuinely know the Lord. Does the witness of the Spirit in your own heart cry out where you, in Romans 8, go, I know you. You are my daddy. You are my heavenly father. I see you in my life. I live submissively to your will. I see your providential hand. Or are you someone who is a worker of lawlessness? What does that mean? Lawlessness is a symptom of a deeper problem. Lawlessness is a symptom of having a rebellious heart. If you have a heart that does not know Jesus genuinely, You might trust in all kinds of religious experiences, but really deep down, you know that you're just in rebellion. You don't care what Jesus thinks about you one way or the other. You don't care about his accountability. You don't care about the word of God in your life. You don't care about what he's telling you about your marriage. You don't care about what he's telling you about your parenting. You don't care at all when you're confronted with scripture. It's all just as the great doctor and reverend Pete Johnson would say in Southern vernacular, it's like water off a duck's back right? It just falls off. You don't care. It's Teflon. Your heart is Teflon. It's just falling off. Nobody cares. Or you're someone who is open. A lawless person 
does not care one way or the other what the Bible is holding them accountable to be. You're lawless. You don't care that the word of God shows you God and you don't care that the word of God shows you your sin. But a regenerate person, a person who's been born again by the Holy Spirit cares and knows God. I'm not talking about the perfection of your life. I'm talking about the direction of your life. It'll look like a sine wave, right? But as you grow, you're growing into conformity with his will and you want Jesus and you want his will. If you don't want that, then... You could come to a place where you're standing before the Lord and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Everything comes down to knowing God. Uh, Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, um, was weeping over Jerusalem that had just been ransacked, had been burned to the ground. And he's calling Israel to believe. He's calling the remnant to believe before Babylonian captivity strikes. Jeremiah 9, verse 23, and thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. You can't be smart enough to get into heaven. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. You can't be strong enough to get into heaven. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. You can't be wealthy enough to get you into heaven. But let him boast who boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, righteousness in the earth. For these things I delight, declares the Lord. Listen, whether it's Wanda Klein sitting bedside with her sister, who's on the edge of eternity, or um, Larry and Rose who are sitting there contemplating that same thing. What really matters? How wise you are, how wealthy you are, how strong you are, none of that matters. When everything is boiled down, when you're standing on the edge of eternity, all that matters is whether or not you yielded to Christ and said, I want to know you. And I know that I know you because I'm living for you and I'm living with you in authenticity. Not performance-based, not actions. I'm just climbing the slaughter gulch. I'm on the hike. Not perfectly. I might be wobbling at times, but I'm on the hike with God, with Christ. And I know he's with me. If he's not, eternity isn't secure. Knowing Jesus now means knowing Jesus through eternity. Not knowing Christ now means you'll be cast out of his presence for eternity. To not be in um, Christ's presence now means that you have no place in eternity. You need to understand that heaven is equated with Christ's presence. So if you have nothing to do with Christ's presence in your life now, then you have no guarantee. You should have no hope that you have eternity with Christ's presence in the future. If you don't have it here and now, why would you expect that you'll have it there and then? J.C. Ryle said, if you have no appetite in his book, Holiness, if you have no appetite for holiness, no appetite for Jesus now, why do you have any sense of assurance that you will be in heaven and with Jesus and in the most holy environment that we could even you know, conceive of? Why would we think that we have anything to do with that there and then? We shouldn't. Let me make this very practical. I'm going to boil this down to real shoe leather practicality. Because this is a heavy message and it's a heavy thing to think through. And you need to really be able to ask yourself a hard hitting question. And this is it. When was the last time that for you being a Christian, let me say it this way, by being a Christian that your life was hard? That's the question. When was the last time 
that you could say, because I'm a Christian, that made my life hard. If the answer is never, then you need to evaluate where you are. When was the last time that your testimony of knowing Jesus Christ, being on the journey of the narrow path, when was the last time that that was hard for you? When was the last time that that invited any kind of suffering, any kind of pressure, any kind of oppression at all? Because being in Christ invites pressure from the world because the world does not like the accountability that Christ brings. So if you're light in a room and people want to hide in the dark, they want to snuff you out. They want to suppress it. They want to cover it. So when was the last time that because you're in Christ, that meant that your life was hard? That's the narrow road. Verse 13 in the immediate context says that the wide gate is easy. Verse 14 says, says that the narrow way is hard that leads to life. Being in Christ makes life uncomfortable. It invites suffering and hardship. The word hard is flibo, which equates with pressure and affliction or oppression. These days, our culture is um, crying out as a victim culture, creating scales and tests and ways to measure yourself in terms of an intersectionality chart to say, where do I fit on the spectrum in terms of being a victim? What kind of victim am I because of any number of reasons? Or what kind of person am I? Am I the victimizer? Am I the person who's the oppressor? Or am I the person who's oppressed? And people are trying to superficially evaluate where they are and measure themselves on that kind of intersectionality chart and say, where do I lie? What are my privileges? What have I been denied because of X, Y, and Z? What? And really, all of that is a satanic distraction so that you won't evaluate, evaluate yourself with the true test, which is the truth test. The truth test. Narrow road or wide road. Which am I on? Because if I'm on the narrow road, guess what? You're going to receive oppression for Christ. That's the kind of oppression. We're not martyrdom complex here. We're not trying to invite, you know, struggle. But it's just a reality. If they persecuted Christ, they're going to persecute us who are his followers. They persecute the master. They're going to persecute the servant of the master. We're vulnerable, but we're not victims. We're victors, right, in Christ. And we're on the narrow road, and we know we're there. We're willing to enter into what Paul called the fellowship of suffering, Philippians 3, that I may, listen, Philippians 3 is all the, the marathon race language, and he's pressing for the prize that I may know him, right, and the power of the resurrection, and may Share, may koinonia, may share or fellowship in his sufferings. What does that mean? That means as you suffer, you don't suffer alone. As hard things hit you, they hit both of you, you and Jesus, you and Jesus. I was going up that hike. Again, I've milked that to death, but the slaughter gulch. I mean, you know, I was together with a friend. Randy and I were going up together. I mean, we're going to remember that, right? He's going, well, you know, I'm the bus driver, so they can't leave. You know, they're down there eating ice cream. They can't leave till we get back, but we should probably turn around. I'm going, no, no, we're going all the way to the top because I'm never doing this again, ever. <laughs> this will be the one time. It's the last outdoor ed. I'm never going up, but I'm going up. And we did that together. That's how it is when you know that you are a Christian. It's you and Jesus against everything else. 
You and Jesus in your marriage, you and Jesus in your parenting, you and Jesus in your lost employment or your threatened employment, you and Jesus when you suffer for the sake of the name and you know that and you have that and you know that you knew him in this life because you did that journey together. It's the fellowship of suffering. It's doing it in the power of the resurrection, the power of the gospel. When you understand these things, everything but your sin that's hard in your life is good. Do you hear that? Everything that's hard in your life is good except for when you sin. Everything, every bad thing is a good thing because you and Jesus are climbing that hike together all the way to heaven so that you can say with him in eternity, we did this together. Oh, I know you and I know that you know me and I'm going in.